Blog Talk Radio. Nine nine seven nine seven one one four two six nine seven one one. All right, I'm calling you. Bye. Tough topics, and I have with me Dr. Karen Huffer. Dr. Huffer, are you on the line? Yes, that worked. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> we we've spent the last few panicky moments uh, trying to figure out our connection, so uh, we're kind of uh, getting getting started with one foot in the air here. So, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. Today's show is a special one. It's special for a number of reasons. One is that we have Dr. Karen Huffer back with us today, and she's always a pleasure to have on the show. And another is that we are talking about a topic um, that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people just don't get this unless you happen to have experience or know somebody with experience with the court systems and an abusive um, spouse. And I just want to start out by saying, yes, men experience this too, but statistically and according to all of the research that I have ever seen that's legitimate research, it happens to women so much more, like 95% more often than it happens to men. So we're going to talk about women as the victims of abusers, uh, and we're going to talk about abusers as males. So if you have a problem with that, you know, you can email me, but that's just the way I'm going to do it. So that's how we are talking about it today. Karen, do you have a problem with that? I'm absolutely good with that because the statistics support it. Okay, great. That's how I feel. And, um, you know, I always have to qualify this because I actually grew up in a household where my mother was abusive. So I'm not unaware that it happens the other way around. But because of the way it happens, I think we just automatically have to acknowledge that the the primary uh, situation that we see is male-on-female abuse. So what happens to that abuse when it comes to court? At some point, you know, the, I always laugh, Karen, because the question always is, if a woman is being abused, well, why doesn't she just leave? And I always say she does. She may not leave when you think she should leave, but she usually does leave, and hopefully she'll live through it. Um, another reason that women don't leave when other people seem to think they should is because of the court system, Um, the whole divorce, child custody thing. And quite frankly, Karen, I think they're pretty smart to realize that that is going to be huge because this is what we've been seeing in our courts the last 20 years. Um, In your experience, is that uh, the, the truth as well? Well, the abuse doesn't stop. The abuse just moves into the court, and you get a different type, but it's terrorizing, and now you've got, sometimes it feels like a whole gang against you, and unless you have some help, you can wind up impoverished, you can wind up in worse shape. Many women say, I wish I'd just taken the abuse. At least the bruise is healed. Or in cases of coercive control, I had no freedom, I was isolated, but at least I knew what was coming. I don't know what's coming in the court. It is uh, a series of lies and tricks and games and obstructions, uh, all of which I'm unprepared to handle, and the cost of it most people cannot afford to use our court system. Well, and the the other thing that you talked about is unless she has help. Most women don't have help. They can't afford an attorney, or they'll have an attorney for the first you know couple of steps, and then it goes away. 
Um, so, you know, where does that help come from? And the other situation is that unless you've gone through this, you don't get it. Most people think courts are where you go for justice, for fairness and justice. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody tell an abused woman, well, take him to court. They'll make him do such and such. And, in fact, it is just the opposite. Um, right. That tell rarely, the judge. Yes. Yes, that somehow or other that will make everything better. Um, and it doesn't. It just doesn't. I suppose there's the rare case where it actually does, but for most people, it doesn't. It makes it even worse. Complicating that is the fact that a lot of women have disabilities when they go to court. If they didn't have them before, they have them after having gone through this process. And I'm talking about PTSD, uh, acute anxiety, chronic uh, depression. Um, those are actually Americans for Disabilities Act recognized disabilities. So yes. many women are walking around with these disabilities, trying to function, trying to negotiate through the worst times in their lives, trying to protect their children, and in fact they're doing so with a recognized and legitimate disability. And not only do they not recognize it, but the courts don't recognize it. So what when happens? it comes on. Yeah, go ahead. When it comes on in the court, it sneaks on to them. And so they've never been disabled before. They don't know why they can't function in court, but they hold it against themselves. Yeah, there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with them that they can't do this. Um, and and that just adds more layers of... of, of uh, uh, guilt, responsibility, feelings of inadequacy. I mean, it just makes for a horrible mess. And then you walk into a court system where you are likely to be encountering all sorts of what I call dirty tricks. Karen, I was negligent. Let's go back and talk about you. Dr. Karen Huffer, um, she has been a family therapist for more than 20 years. She's an expert in PTSD and legal abuse syndrome. In fact, uh, Karen, you, you kind of developed that, um, the concept of legal abuse syndrome, did you not? Yes, I did, in the early 90s and published in 95 on it. Okay. Um, she currently heads up the Equal Access Advocacy Program at John Jay University, which is really a, a wonderful program, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that before we close the show today. And, gosh, you have seen your share of some brutal court cases. Um, let's just lay the groundwork here. What are we talking about? Are we talking about, uh, oh, gosh, somebody's attorney calling somebody else a little nasty name? What are we talking about? Are we exaggerating the idea that these tactics might be abusive? No. In fact, in all of the years that I have been in the courts now, I am watching it get worse. And we, today... And every day, I work on solutions. I cannot tolerate talking about the problem if I can't be talking about a solution, too. Because, one, like you said, people don't want to believe it. If you go to a therapist and explain it, very often you come away with an odd diagnosis because they have no idea what you're talking about by going into your court is abuse, and it can cause a secondary PTSD if you already have an impairment. But the kinds of things that I think you were getting at that are used, the usual things, are pretext. Uh, Your opposition goes in and gives a justification for why they're there, and the real reason that they believe that they have a case against you. It won't be real. It will be something like uh, you were abusive to them. They need a restraining order against you. Many false accusations. She's crazy is the usual one. And that's the one that I love to deal with because you cannot do that in a court of law. If you come in and call my client crazy, We're going to stop the proceeding and we're going to have the judge remind the opposition that any medical or or anything related 
to medical is confidential. It is not to be discussed in that courtroom. And if the, uh, his honor wants to take it up, we must go in chambers. It must be under that, seal. That is astonishing to me because I cannot, I wish I had a dollar for every time uh, some, uh, you know, uh, abuser uh, said that his wife was crazy. And oh, yeah. Court. And they just yeah. kind of go, uh-huh, okay. And nobody stops them. I mean, gee. And then they look you know, at her like askance. Yes. Well, and then usually if she does have PTSD, I always say, <coughs> excuse me, I always say that we're familiar with soldiers with PTSD. We're familiar with the idea that they hear a car backfire and they die for cover because they mistake it for gunfire. That's our vision of what PTSD is. But if you have PTSD because you've been abused, you're not diving for gunfire at the sound of, of a backfire or diving for cover. You are hearing a phrase. For example, you have no idea. I know of one woman who whose abuser used that phrase, you have no idea. And that was always before the abuse happened. And she worked for an employer. She got a job, and the boss said, Oh, you have no idea. You have no idea. Every time he said that, she, her mind just went to panic, total panic. She shut down. She did not respond. She just kind of was waiting to endure what he had to say. And it put her in a terrible place. And her boss wrote on her uh, evaluation that she couldn't take criticism. She w- would not interact. And she ended up losing her job. Now, if her boss had understood she had PTSD and that phrase, that phrase was triggering a a flashback, it would have been very different. But we have this notion that it has to be the backfire of the car and the gunfire, da-da-da. No, it can be words, phrases, expressions, uh, and any of those things can come up in court. These are psychiatric injuries, and they affect communication. And if there's anything you need in court, it's clear and effective communication. And that's what breaks down right at the moment that you get triggered. And triggering can be the smell of the the cologne the person wears, uh, a certain look, body language. That's why we try and keep the people apart. If they have to go to court, we ask that, that the victim have distance appearances by phone or court call, that they're sequestered in a different room in the courthouse because they will not be able to concentrate and they must never be questioned by the abuser. Oh, but that happens, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And the court will say, well, he has a right to confront his accuser. Not directly, not in cases of of, uh, domestic violence. And that can be coercive control as well. And that's the tricky one because there are no bruises. There is, he hit the wall, not you. He ran into your car. He took your car keys and kept you from having transportation. He emptied the bank accounts. He has commandeered the finances. He controls your medication. Well, what do you, you call the police over this? You tell the judge this? They do think you're crazy. Coercive control has to be carefully uh, imparted to the court in a way that they understand this woman has lived under prison conditions for a very long time. It's a pattern of abuse. It's still abuse. The other trick... Let's get back to actually in the courtroom. So a person goes into court who may or may not have PTSD, probably does, who may or may not have chronic anxiety or or acute anxiety or chronic depression, all of these things going on. She goes in, and chances are she's fighting for her life, and she's probably fighting for the lives of her children because she has um, – chances are that it's not just the divorce. It's also custody of the children that's being fought over. So she's in a really high-threat situation. What are some of the tactics that abusers and their um, uh, lawyers use? Obstruction of information 
is one of the big ones. They do not allow you to get your evidence in, and they will not cooperate with discovery. You attempt to get the proof. You attempt to get the documents. You attempt to get what you need. They just don't provide them. Just attempting to locate, Your Honor. Yes, we'll take care of that, Your Honor. But they never follow the court rules in your face when it comes to the court rules. Now, I talked about court call, which is a service that you pay for appearing in court on the phone, and there's a machinery that court call has put in the, the, um, the courtroom that has speakers, and so that you, you pay 50 to $90 usually, and you can appear that way, and it's been very effective four times. In the last month, the court has cut off the court call so that the hearing was ex parte. The hearing was only with the abuser, and I was the advocate in one location, victim in another, and an attorney in another, and they cut us all off, would not let us in. We, we, yes. We contacted court call. We found that it was intentional. We got affidavits from court call so we can show that she was denied access four times in that court. We are filing now to disqualify that judge. And that's a, that's a I am. Thing to do, though. That's a really yeah. tough thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. So, okay, well, yeah. So, yeah. But, but so we what, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you, one of the tactics that, and and it seems to me, I'm sure this is a gross generalization and somebody's going to nail me for it, but it seems to me that really nasty people find really nasty lawyers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you <know>? yeah. <laughs> they seem to come in pairs, you know. Um, and yeah. so uh, I'm kind of using them um, interchangeably here, the the abuser and the abuser's attorney. So you're saying that the first thing they do is obstruct. They just dig their heels in, pretend they're going to go ahead and get you the documents or whatever. Um, if nobody has been through this process, what happens is court is all about a lot of paperwork. And so you have to gather paperwork, you have to gather all these pieces of paper, and you're required to give certain pieces of paper to the other party, and they're required supposedly to give certain pieces of paper to you so that you can see financial histories and so you can see all sorts of stuff. But if the other party doesn't do it, what do you do? And I think a lot of people who've never been in court thinks, well, that's where the judge will make them. Eh, it doesn't really happen that way, does it? Um, it doesn't. They, the abuser has ways. The coercive controller, the abuser, has ways of charming, threatening. They have their methods of influencing people. And it's very, very difficult to force them to do what you need them to do. And I am stunned at how many times the court lets them get off the hook on child support, on this kind of thing, on discovery. Uh, oh, yeah. The other thing that happens is the record. I, I just can't, I, I can't emphasize enough. You are in court to make the record. And people forget that. Uh, they start to cry, they get upset, they plead for the court, but they forget that they are there to make a strong record for their side legally. So what happens is the other side has, outrage has become a, a tactic. It's become a way to get you so off balance that while you're coping with the lies and the outrageous things, that are coming at you, they are putting things on that record. And the record is what stands when it goes to appeal or you have to use that record for something. So it's very it's important to remember. What? It's all about the pieces of paper. You know, yes. I, I mean, 
it's just astounding, really, that it's just about the pieces of paper. Um, and it's almost as if the the one who can gather the most pieces of paper, whether they're outrageous or not, you know, they, they what was that, that saying that there used to be, Karen, that, you know, the one with the most toys wins or something like that? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, it's almost like that with courts. The one with the most pieces of paper wins, you know. And, and it, it turns out being the one with the most lies. Yes, and it doesn't matter what's on those pieces of paper. You can you can say whatever you want on those pieces of paper. Um, you know, I, I, she is crazy. She is this. She is that. Her mother was mentally ill, therefore she is. She, you know, she's threatened my life. She's threatened the life of my children. You know, you can say whatever you want on those papers. Now, hopefully, you know, if they're totally bogus, that'll come out, but not necessarily. Um, not necessarily. It 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 just it's an astounding thing. So, okay, so the tactics that are used, you're talking about obstruction, where you're just not providing the information you're supposed to provide. And what I have seen, Karen, is that all you have to do is keep it, keep the ball in the air for a certain length of time, and pretty soon the judges, the other lawyers, they seem to have a short attention span. The longer you can stall, the longer you can not do what they tell you to do, the more readily they tend to just forget it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, um, and so uh, you have uh, litigants that won't, uh, but meanwhile, while they're not providing what they're supposed to do, they are generating documents saying, you're crazy, you've threatened your children, you've done this. Well, then they're that. bringing contempt. Now, they're bringing contempt on you all the time. Uh, you know, and I, I have uh, cases where they set you up for a contempt. One was a father told the mother to send the child for visitation to a certain airport. She sent her there. He went to a different one, or says he did. Then he accused her of uh, manipulating that and brought contempt charges. This was a continual pattern of him bringing contempt against this mother. She was always doing something wrong. Now, what... Again, I go to solution. So what is this poor person doing? She's being set up. She's being lied about. She's being lied to. She tries to put her evidence in. They block her. They file to uh, keep her from bringing certain things in. They do everything they can to control the record. Now, this person can't be alone the first thing they do is want to isolate her. So if she brings somebody with her, including attorneys, they will begin to intimidate the attorney. They'll begin to attack the attorney. Up in Silicon Valley where people have nothing but money, I have cases where they depose my client's attorney and they try and get information about the case and about her and private information that should be uh, confidential between the attorney and client. That's privileged. But they will attack and attack and attack. Uh, so what we have is a situation where the person can't be alone. That person must have someone with them who is not going to be intimidated who knows what the federal law is and the beautiful thing. You know, I, I criticize Congress a lot, and they have a very low uh, approval rating. But one thing they did right was the Americans with Disabilities Act. And once these people qualify under that, once my client qualifies under that, we can really put an end to a whole lot of that game play. And so a lot of that nonsense the they're doing. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the solutions down the road here, Karen. But okay. let's talk more about some of these tactics that are used. So we've talked about okay. obstruction. We've talked about not cooperating. I've also heard of situations, repeatedly filing motions. Um, oh, gosh, I, I picked up my, my daughter on Wednesday. She didn't have a coat with her. She said she didn't have a coat, and so I had to take her and buy her a coat. I want her mother to reimburse me, and I want her investigated. Her mother investigated because she's not dressing the child with the child support money that I'm giving her. 
uh, filing motions like that. Um, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, my daughter said she needs clothes. I'm giving her mother money for clothes. Why isn't she buying clothes? File a motion. Um, you know, any, anything, anything and everything. Um, changing lawyers. Um, there are some cases where there's 20, 30 lawyers that have been brought on board, then taken off board uh, for one reason or another. Each time the um, uh, woman's lawyer had to spend her money to bring the new lawyer up to speed. Um, and it was just kind of a constant drain. The other thing is finding ways that, that to, to drive her broke, to make her go broke. Um, have you seen that with the, the multiple lawyers, changing lawyers, you know, efforts to, yes. to drive? I, yeah, exactly. And if she changes lawyers once or twice, oh, my goodness, there's this whole bit. She can't get along. She just can't yeah. get along with lawyers. She She's on her third lawyer, Your Honor. But the yeah. other side will bring in lawyer after lawyer and expert after expert. And, yes, you're right. She gets to pay to bring them up to speed. And then, then they run their set of games on her. Now, I, again, I, I want to – I'm holding on the – the uh, solution to that. Yeah. yeah so, we're get um, to that. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, this happens. I mean, it happens time and time mm-hmm. and time again. And I think for the part of the problem with this is that for everybody thinks it should be fair. I mean, I, I've been a mother. If I were the judge sitting up there and this person, I want to call him a defendant, but it's not a defendant unless it's a criminal action. Um, but this party says, oh, look at this. This proves her instability. She's on our third lawyer. But meanwhile, he's on his 10th or 11th. Why would I even hear that? I mean, as a mother, I would sit there and go, uh-huh, yeah. Well, when she gets to 10, then we'll talk, okay? You know. <laughs> but yet judges will seriously look at these things as if they don't know that this is the 10th lawyer for him. I don't. I have a really hard time with that uh, of understanding um, why judges don't seem to jump on some of these things. I, I really have a hard time with it. I've had lawyer well, after lawyer explain to me that, well, but that's the system. You have to address each one as it comes up. And if she's not complaining that he had ten lawyers in the same action, then that's what they look at is the fact that she's had three lawyers. You know, it makes no common sense. For anybody, the whole court system, as far as I can tell. But then I'm jaded and old. What do you? <laughs> well, as point? she gets more and more traumatized throughout the system, and more and more tired, and while she's running the kids to soccer and dealing with homework and all the rest, one side is in there, all dressed up, well shrouded by lawyers, has commandeered the finances, can pay, sometimes paying corruption money, sometimes not. Uh, She's in there somewhat shriveled up. She's forgotten her paperwork. She's doing the best she can to communicate, but with PTSD, it interferes with expressive speech. So she may be stumbling with her words and trying to say, but he, but, but. And so the judge is looking out and saying, well, Obviously, this guy has it together, and she's a wreck. So, yeah, she probably is all those things they're accusing her of. Karen, that exact situation happened to me with a family court judge that I had on the show. I asked the family court judge outright, how does a judge make a decision on child custody when you have two people in front of you, one of whom has been a primary care mother and one of whom has domestic violence? documented domestic violence in their background how what is in the judge's mind and this judge actually said to me well you have to understand you've got one who uh, is clearly in distress who doesn't have it all together doesn't seem to be very organized kind of disheveled she can't even take care of herself let alone her child and then you've got the other party who's calm and in control and got it together so if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we'll give the children to him. 
a judge. Well, and what's that, that bad? You know, when you think of coercive control, where you have people that are afraid and they, uh, they virtually will get locked in places, like I said, their keys taken from them, uh, they will be punished in many ways, mostly by isolation from family and friends. Uh, they are stalked. They have no privacy whatsoever. Uh, it's very frightening. And there's always the threat of being killed over them. Like I said, they hit the wall. They, they hit their car with the car. Um, so there's always that threat. And how do you... The, our challenge is how do we communicate that to the judge and the effects of that and the effects of that on the children. Yeah. Oh, and yes, absolutely. You know, again, Karen, I've been negligent. I get so excited about this topic. I haven't thrown out our phone number or our chat room. Um, you can go to our chat room and leave a comment if you would like, um, or if you want to give us a phone call, tell us about some of your experiences, please do so, 646 Three seven eight zero four three zero. That's six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. Let's talk about the truth about what happens in court when you're in an abusive situation. Okay, so we've talked about stalling. Um, uh, well, have we talked about stalling? Stalling is a tactic where, oh, we're supposed to go and do this on such and such a day, or you're supposed to have completed this on such and such a day, and we go to court, and, oh, Your Honor, we need more time for that. We need more time for that. And again, I think for people who haven't been in court a lot, you think, well, the, a judge is only going to let them get by with that just oh, only so many times. But it's astounding how often they can get by with that. In my observations of court, family court, it seems like the only time that I have ever seen a judge really nail um, um, a party for stalling or for obstruction or uh, is if that party actually did something that was an affront to the judge. If the judge yeah. sees their behavior as something that's, you know, in his face, then boom, then they'll nail them. But if it's just something that's in the other party's face, okay. <laughs> I'm probably making yeah. lots of attorney and judge enemies out there, but I'm honest. These are my observations. This is what I have seen. Um, so, you know, I mean, it seems like they can just get away with so much. And until you've seen it, until you've been in those courts or, or you know, God help you if, if you've been in that situation, it's absolutely astounding. I can't tell you how many women that I've talked to who've been in abusive situations who said, finally, finally when we go to court, I'm thinking finally there will be somebody who will make him stop or rein him in. And never. I have never heard somebody who said, yeah, that's what happens. Well, so it, got, I see the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just egregious. And the and uh, the research, you know, Dr. Daniel Saunders, uh, um, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Ansys, we've got, we've got a lot of research out there that supports the things that we're saying, Janet. So you've got all of this stuff. You've got the stalling, the obstruction, the changing of lawyers, the finding really nasty lawyers, the um, uh, repeated filings of motions, the objections to somebody else being there with her. Um, you've got also accusations. Um, you, you already said the crazy. I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard an abuser say that it's part Well, and then following the crazy is ordering a, a psyche valve. You've got to have a yeah. psyche valve. And, uh, I, you know, I have people that have had four or five. Well, I tell the court they're not valid. You know, if, if you've had that many tests, they're simply not valid anymore. But they do the psyche valve. Now, let me ask, what good does a diagnosis do a judge? So a judge gets a diagnosis of adjustment disorder, um, you know, one of the uh, stress disorders, what does the judge do with that? Why is that helpful? They can't remove the child. They cannot determine custody or any decision based upon a diagnosis. Only behavior. So why are we doing all these expensive psyche vows in these courts? 
So in other words, I didn't know this, Karen. So in other words, um, he goes in and says, well, I should have custody of the children because she's crazy. And so the judge says, okay, she has to have a psych eval. And what if a diagnosis comes back as uh, 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 bipolar or something? And you're saying doesn't matter if it's treated? It or not does not matter. He can't. He cannot decide custody based upon a diagnosis. But it's one more nail it in the has, coffin, isn't it? Well, not really, because she has rights to now accommodations or help if she really has it. She also has a right to a second opinion. So and then it, it just becomes a he said, she said. My, her, my, his, his. Uh, mental health counselor says she has this, that, or the other thing. Her mental health counselor says, no, she's perfectly functional. And so all we did was just spend several hundreds of dollars on to, to help to... For nothing. Get, for nothing, yeah. For, yeah. Yeah, for nothing. And so what would this mean in terms of her behavior? Well, they used to have people, experts that they hired, to come in and say, well, because of this, uh, she can't be trusted, she could do this, she could do that, she can't do that anymore. Why? Provable Why behaviors, because the Department of Justice uh, has decided you cannot remove children based upon what you think could be coming if something happened as a result of a diagnosis. And that was done on uh, in 2015. That's a Massachusetts case, and it is um, you cannot remove a child based upon being concerned something might happen because of a person's diagnosis. And they have removed a child because of a mental health diagnosis. Well, usually that's what they are. Now, if you've been out shooting up the neighborhood with your gun, they can use that behavior. Okay. So if you've threatened people. Okay. Right. And, but they, you have to have done the behavior. They, don't, they can't just say, well, it could happen. Yeah. Yeah. I and, see and that's a slope. Yeah. Some, so many diagnoses are not accurate. And judges are not mental health experts or medical experts in most cases. So they can make very serious errors. Okay. Wow. I I wasn't aware of that. That's a whole, I mean, are a lot of attorneys aware of that? I mean. No, they're not trained. I'm training them as hard and fast as I can. I have several in every class. And they tell me, oh, my God, this has changed my whole practice. And, um, you know, I'm thrilled. But we, uh, we now will be attempting to go to the Supreme Court and the bars and get where lawyers have to take some of this training. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is crazy. Okay. Back to the tactics that are used. There's the big one, the the $64,000 one, filing for custody. Um, Mm -hmm. I know so many cases where um, an abuser filed for custody, um, but amazingly, that went away once she agreed to not accept any child support or any alimony or anything like that. Yeah, Um, monetarily motivated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, that's a huge one. That is a huge. I mean, you you threaten children. You threaten to take away children. That's huge. Um, I I was talking to a person not too long ago. Well, I guess a, a, a year or so ago, and um, she mentioned that she had a new neighbor. The new neighbor did not have custody of her children, and she wondered why. I said, well, you know, it could be a number of reasons, you know, and my neighbor was just. I mean, my my friend was just really struggling to try and define why this woman didn't have her children. And finally, one day she called me and she said, oh, she's a drinker. And I said, did she drink before she lost her children? And my friend said, well, what difference does that make? (laughs) And I said, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Yeah. Um, I think that people assume still 
that if a woman loses her children, she must have done something egregious. Mm-hmm. But that's also wrong. Women, perfectly wonderful mothers, some who have been, you know, exclusive caretakers for their children, who have been exemplary caretakers for their children, lose custody. It happens every day. Every day. It's one of the tactics that's used in court. Uh, How often do you see that one? And what does that do um, to the abused party? Often I see it, and it destroys them. They live in grief that is, um, as I explain in my writing, it's a different kind of grief. Um, it's a, a extreme grief. And, uh, and they do their best to get the children back. But then they find that they either get Disneyland uh, dad or dad is so discrediting of the mother that the child becomes begins to be suspicious. Uh, Sometimes they don't buy it, but sometimes they can be influenced. And slander, lying, uh, these alienating tactics really can cause a lot of damage. Now, there is no alienation syndrome. We know that because there's never been research. But custodial interference is serious, and you get one parent that can get custody for a while, and they can begin to just, it's almost like the Chinese uh, brainwashing used to be. It's, It's subtle. Well, it's because of mom we can't go do this. Well, it's because your mom has taken all my money that we uh, can't do that. Well, no, you can't have those lessons because I wish you could, but if mom hadn't, you know, so it, it's it's these subtle things where did she really love me and did she really want good things for me or, you know, um, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, and that is a tactic that's used in court. Filing for custody is a tactic often, mm-hmm. not always, but often it is. Um, and it's also a form of intimidation, which is frequently used in court scenarios. Um, you know, just the, the fact of going into a court can be intimidating. If you're going in fighting for your life, it's super intimidating. Um, so, and and these are abusers and their 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 lawyers. They can. Oh, we didn't mention unreasonable questioning. You know. Um, oh yeah. I know of one situation where uh, the woman was on the stand and, and the the man's attorney said, who told you you were abused? Who told you? Uh, well, you know, um, how, how do you know who told you? You know, what, what, do, How many feminist organizations do you belong to? Mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> really? Right. <laughs> You know, in other words, implying that the person was just brainwashed into thinking that unreasonably and inaccurately that she had been abused, you know, by the nasty feminists, you know. Uh, I mean, it just, it's, it, it is more of that subtle stuff, but it is nasty, it's intimidating, and it's unreasonable to question what organizations do you belong to, you know, when gauging whether or not, you know, you you're, you get a divorce or whether you get children, you know. I, I mean, it just is astounding to me. You mentioned the requiring of all the psychological reports, um, which, is there ever a scenario where the psychological reports are useful? Uh, they can be, but, but there are better things for a court of law uh, in certain instances where you have someone, uh, you know, in criminal cases, that kind of thing, I find them quite useful uh, in getting fair sentences and and that kind of thing. So there is a time, but you always know if someone's called someone crazy and then they want a psyche valve, and both aren't asked for the psyche valve, only the one being called crazy. Now we've got hints that it's only going to try to be used to discredit the person. What we have instead are ways of figuring out what helps the court. You know, if this mother is having a problem 
being organized, uh, what helps the court to feel comfortable to leave custody with her? Well, we've got a lot of ways to do that. But that isn't, if it's a full-out attack, and you cannot defend against a lie. So if the lies are coming and they, they go like used car salesmen, the lies will come at you until you are, you're mind-boggled and PTSD will be set off. Um, it has to be prevented. These scenarios in court have to be prevented. Okay. All right. One more thing before we get to the, what we can do about it, and that is why do lawyers and judges and courts, whom I have always heard, value the letter of the law? Why do they allow such behavior? There are so many reasons that can explain that. And it starts with that they have the highest, highest percentage of suicide, depression, substance abuse uh, of all the professions. So when you go to court, when I sit there in court and I look at who's around me uh, and I see people with certain traits that look to me like they had a bad night the night before and they're not feeling good to begin with, um, sometimes they are ill themselves. They have trauma themselves. I have them catch me in the elevator or on the way out of the building all the time and give me their cards and say, I need to talk to you. They're having a tough time. Being a lawyer is not easy in today's world. And being in those courtrooms, all shut up the way they are, the whole system needs to be revamped. But so one, they've learned how to survive it. Then there's corruption, and a lot of people want to go attack the corruption. I don't have time in my life to pin that down, become the, the detective, and try and get these courts to do anything about it. But what I can do is look at what's around me and be very observant. And when I see lawyers that look like they're on their last leg or they're, they look like they're falling asleep during the, the hearing, I know something's wrong, and we have to stop and revisit uh, what's going on. We may want to file something to be discussed in camera. Uh, if they seem to be uh, okay, but they're just mean, and I thought when we got more women on the bench, these women would have a better chance. Wrong! Some of these women are the meanest magistrates and judges I've ever seen in my life. And then they get cozied up to different lawyers. And lawyers know how to go behind the scenes and honey up to the clerks, the judicial assistants. They bring them candy and flowers and put their arm around them and make them feel important. And they have ways of going back there and saying, can you slide this one to the bottom? Just, you know, can you just kind of, can I get the judge's stamp on this? Things are going on behind the scenes all the time. They lobby. So we never know which combination of what is going on. But it's why you, you need to not be alone, because you can't observe all that, listen to everything, make your notes, be ready for the next. Um, activity in the courtroom and um, and and be by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I think, from my experience, I'm going to add to what you had to say, which was surprising to me. Um, I have always heard from lawyers and, and judges that I have spoken to about allowing this. I've always heard it couched in terms of, well, it's about the law. It's not, not about the individual. It's not about this, the particular case. It's about the law and the letter of the law. And so my feeling based on those answers was that they think that they can just go, you know, at, if this is the sheet that has the rule, then this is the sheet that I'm looking at, and they look at it from that standpoint only and not from a larger context. 
that's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> well, I wish. I wish that was true. What I don't hear in the in the courtroom is the law. What I hear is the attorney testifies, which he shouldn't do. The yeah. attorney stand up and testifies. That shouldn't happen without my client being able to cross him. Yeah. But they stand yeah, up and, and they... Anybody who's watched a TV show knows what you mean by saying that, I think. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Karen. We're down to the last 10 minutes, and, and I've, I've let this go a, a little bit too long. But what do we do about this? What do we do about all this? I know the first thing that I think of is getting support, and there are a number of organizations out there, um, uh, protective mothers associations, et cetera, that will provide support. But I don't know too many that are supporting this situation from a legal standpoint. Um, and let's face it, any kind of uh, support, especially when you're talking law, is going to drain the bank very quickly. So what do we do about this? What if, you know, if, if we are caring bystanders, is there anything we can do? And if we're a party to all of this, is there anything we can do? Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, okay, good. <laughs> you have to get law that is bigger than the laws and the rules that you're watching be violated, and that would be federal. You have to get federal mandates, federal laws, to help you. And these fall under civil rights laws. That doesn't mean you have to take your case to the Supreme Court, although I really want to help foster some of that. But um, you have to get a law and the gift that I was saying that Congress gave us is the ADA. And as I studied it and I looked for solutions for these women, you have to have something that's ministerial and administrative, not discretionary. In other words, the judge, yeah, the judge does not make the decision. It comes ah. down from Washington and it says you shall. Ministerial means you shall. Well, when it comes from Washington, uh, a Stanford moot court uh, that we held, we determined that it leaves Washington ministerial. You shall do this. Now, when it reaches your courthouse, it becomes administrative. Now you have the law and what you have to do, basically. But how to do that, you do have a little bit of room. But you still have to do it, and you have to accommodate these people. And when you talk about these people being asked bad questions on the stand, those are tendentious questions. Those are questions designed to set you up to twist it around and say, well, if you answered that way here, certainly you can't be responsible for raising your children here. So we have to put in accommodations for this person with a disability, just like a wheelchair ramp. We have to put in no tendentious questions designed to exploit that disability. We have to point out we have to sit with that client and figure out where are they not making it in that courtroom and fill that hole. And with training and understanding the ADA law, uh, which was just updated in October of 2016, so it's brand new, brand new regulations. When you understand that law, you understand you can pretty well stop people from beating people up in court. But you have to not be intimidated because lawyers will lie to you and they'll say, you're practicing uh, unlicensed practice of law. I'm going to, that's a felony. I'm going to bring charges against you. And I say, I'm under the ADA and I'm fully protected and uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get on with what we have to do here. Um, so once you know that, and you're willing to go in that courtroom with that person and be with them at least on the phone. Sometimes you can't get with them. We don't have enough advocates to walk in the courtroom with, with every single person. But we can be on the telephone. And when they need us, I can be listening in, 
when they need to take a break, we take a break. That can be part of the accommodations. If they are saying that you're doing something wrong and you have a disability, you can't take care of your kid, well, you have an accommodation. Your mom is checking in on you and and, uh, you have accommodations. You're fine. So accommodations are the key. It's what we do to alter the regular process. We know the regular process isn't working. So we have to alter it and custom it so that the person gets a fair shot in court. Okay. And what about money? Well, the uh, as it stands, whoever pays you can threaten to not pay you and can change your behavior. So we really like those uh, advocates to be autonomous and to work it out with the client. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of clients can pay you. They can't pay a $30,000 retainer every time a lawyer turns around, but they can pay our moderate fees and pay them just fine. And I've been told again and again, that was the best money they spent. So I like being autonomous. The court really, by law, should pay them. But once the court pays you, now you've got to understand, you've got to work under their rules, and they're going to twist and turn. And until we can trust our courts to be really uh, accountable and with proper oversight, I don't know that we want to take that risk. But that's a choice that an advocate makes. They can go to the court and file. So what you're talking about is your program at John Jay University about equal access advocates. Um, Can you give a website for that if somebody wants to learn more? I like them to go to www.equalaccessadvocates.com. Okay. And we will keep them up to speed there. Equal Equal access advocates. Okay. And I've got to tell you, I, I actually signed up for the course. I'm, I'm halfway through. I'm about a week and a half behind here, so I've got to get, get rolling. But <clears throat> I have learned more things. And, and I've, I've, you know, been, you know, my master's degree is in domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, it's been a number of years that I've been studying uh, these kinds of this, this situation in our culture. I've learned things from the textbook, Unlocking Justice, that you wrote. So um, even if you're not interested in being an advocate, um, check out the book Unlocking Justice by Dr. Karen Huffer, um, and that's available on Amazon, I assume. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had an author once tell me about my book that if you're not on Amazon, you don't exist. So <laughs> That's the main distributor anymore. Yep. Put yeah, all the rest of them out of business. Yeah, unfortunately. Anyway, um, so Equal Access Advocates, and I'm, I, somewhere when I finish the program, I want to talk to you uh, again about that, Karen, because I think that there's so many ways that people are trying to address the situation in court when it comes to abuse and coercive control, and this is certainly a unique way, and I'm really excited about it. Um, so I'm looking forward to continuing with the, with the program and um, learning more uh, as we go through there. Now, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, if people are interested in um, just getting more help from the ADA, they can go to the ADA website, the Americans for Disabilities website, and it is an extensive resource um, that will tell you, help you uh, figure out if you are, are actually working and operating under a disability that's recognized. Uh, by the federal government. And if you are, do do people need documentation about that, Karen? No. One diagnosis is all that's required anymore, and the burden has been shifted to the institution to accommodate. Uh, it used to be on the person to prove. That's not true anymore. It's, uh, but that's one thing that the advocates help with. We want an army of advocates all over these courthouses, and that okay. will change the system. 
I think you're right. I think that, and and certainly, as I said, there are other efforts going on um, to try and and improve this court situation. But um, go to Dr. Karen Huffer's Equal Access Advocates website, and uh, we have used up our time today, Karen. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. I do have a quote. Um, It is from Sarah J. Moss. I don't know who she is. I think she's an author. She wrote Queen of Shadows. And her quote is, Ten years of shadows, but no longer. Light up the darkness, your majesty. And that's a quote about court, so a British court. Thank you for joining us today on Three Women, Three Ways. And we appreciate your listening. We hope you learned something today. Join us next week. And thank you for being with us.